I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. This is the show where we talk about thrival. Sometimes we have to talk about survival. Sometimes it's just getting us through the night and there to see another day. And because there's been such a focus on mental health, you know, we know that we're not just living through a health pandemic at all. It's a mental health pandemic for sure. And some of what we're experiencing in terms of stress and anxiety and depression peaking at the moment is is very difficult to deal with and sometimes more contagious than any virus. So I had the real privilege of witnessing or listening to Daryl Brown, who is our guest today on Thrive, tell his unbelievable story of going through many years of mental torment and anguish, getting through a terrible, terrible incident in his life, which he is going to tell us about, and unbelievably emerging on the other end not just emerging with joy and galloping into the sunset, but emerging with struggle and emerging with challenge and emerging with new awareness. And that kind of new awareness and the lessons through that incident and through adversity are really what we want you to listen to and to resonate with today. So, Daryl, it's just such a pleasure. And thank you for being willing to share your story with us. Thanks for inviting me, Diane, and um, thanks for that the really complimentary introduction. Yeah. Well, you know, really, it was incredible. You know, when we did our webinar, there were 6,302 people on that webinar, and it was one of those experiences where people were phoning their friends, and instead of dropping off webinars because they were long, people were just joining right till the end. And it was really wanting to hear not only the kind of details of that story, but how do you get over life when it's really so tough? What is the testimony to the human spirit? How can we have a piece of the resilience and the determination and the optimism that you you and people on that webinar were sharing with us? So we're wanting some of that today, and as many people to understand what is possible, even when they think that nothing is. And your story certainly tells us that. So, Daryl, you're South African and you were born in South Africa and lived here for almost Uh all of your early life. Yes, Um, I lived here until I was 23. And then I, I moved to London to study for a little while. Okay. And so during that time, you know, before you moved to London, there were certain factors that influenced you moving to London and issues that you had been attempting to deal with before you left, pretty much on your own for some time. What was going on with you that precipitated you saying, I'm going to London? Yes. I had been struggling with depression for about 10 years since I was 12. And, you know, my parents were going through a rough time financially and with their relationship. I mean, I was being bullied at school for being gay, even though I hadn't really come out or didn't really know what being gay meant. And so I kind of thought that, you know, I just have to suck it up and get myself together and try and figure out, overcome my depression on my own. I didn't want to bother my my family with it because I felt like they already had enough burdens. 
And I looked around and I thought, you know, everyone's got issues, but everyone else is dealing with this. So why can't I deal with mine? And so I tried to kind of cure my depression myself by joining a church and then leaving a church, getting involved in different hobbies, starting a new job. I eventually even came out as gay. And, you know, I thought, okay, now that I can finally be myself, I'll be happy. Um, but changing all of those things around me on the outside didn't, didn't really fix the emotional state that I had inside. Eventually, I moved to London because I'd been to visit a friend there. And from the moment I stepped off the train, I felt like I could really be myself for the first time. I felt like I was at home and I'd never had that feeling before. Um, so I thought, okay, if I move to London, everything will be fine. I'll be cured. And and I also, I didn't really understand depression at that time. I didn't really understand like that it could be treated or that it needed to be treated. I just thought I was being weak or not you know, dealing with, with my issues. So what was the actual experience of depression? What did you know going that? If you want someone, and there's many people listening now, to let me tell you what depression is like. This is what it feels like. What would you say? You know, I would, I would wake up in the morning and I would be disappointed immediately. I would feel like when I would go to bed at night, I would feel like I just want to go to sleep and never wake up. I just need some kind of relief from this constant you know, persecution in my mind that I'm not good enough, that I'm a failure, that I'm not um, strong enough to deal with this. And once I was in London, things didn't really go the way I'd planned and it looked like I was going to have to come back to South Africa. You know, I had my first romantic relationship, which ended after six months. I wasn't doing as well in my master's degree as I'd hoped. I was struggling to get sponsored for a work visa in London. And I just felt like I'd run out of, of options. I couldn't think of anything else to, to cure my depression. Um, and I just, I just wanted some kind of relief. I wanted some kind of peace. And so I decided to, to kill myself. And, you know, once I made that decision, it was, I felt such a sense of relief and I made the decision about two months before I actually did lead. Um, and yeah, I jumped in front of a, an underground train. But I was just planning, just I wanted to tie up all the loose ends in my life, finish my degree, say goodbye to my friends in London. But once I'd made that decision to take my own life, I felt such a sense of relief because I was like, okay, it's just a few more, a few more weeks, and then this will all be over. I'll be able to. I'll just get some peace. I'll have a way out. I won't have to deal with a sense of failure all the time. So for you, because I'm, I'm wanting to really understand what it feels like to wake up and live with this day off, day off, day. So a lot of people, when they describe depression, they say it's a huge feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. That only they don't see any light in front of them. They believe that the way they're feeling now is going to be like that forever. Totally, yes. And then, of course, it's overwhelming sadness. Mm. Yeah, it does affect every part of your life. You can't concentrate at work. I had no appetite. I couldn't sleep. And I felt like um, there was no way out. And I was going to feel this way forever and ever. And I couldn't deal with that anymore. I needed to, to get some relief. Find a way. Yeah. And the only way you could think of, because, you know, you were 23 and you'd been suffering from this, well, 
And that, yes. to me, is probably part of the saddest part of your story, that you think of this little boy, beautiful little boy, having to deal with every single day on their own for very many years, 12 years and more, you know, of your life like that. It also talks to another aspect, which you only came to realize afterwards, and that was that there was a resilience, even in the depression. I mean, you try to find many ways. You went to church groups, you found friends, you, <laughs> you know, study. You, you know, these were very strong ways of how can I try and deal with this. Yes. And it was only the right of desperation where you say to yourself, so the only way is to not endure it any longer. And then you experience that sense of relief, I'm going to make it end. So what happened on that day? You planned it about two months before. And then what what happened? Yes. You know, about a week before it happened, I held a kind of a farewell party for myself in London. I told all my friends in London that I was moving back to South Africa and I deactivated my Facebook account so that they wouldn't know I hadn't come back. I'd given my landlord a month's notice. And on that day, I just packed my suitcase and I went down to the nearest tube station and I sat on the platform waiting for it to be empty. And then when the next train came, I just stepped um, onto the track. Is that an image that memory is that strong. Like as you talk about it, can you see yourself? You remember that so. I can remember the the time on the platform, and you know, I kind of felt a sense of elation or euphoria that it was going to be over soon. Um, and while I was waiting for the platform to be emptied and for people to um, leave. You know, I just sat playing Sudoku on my phone. I was completely, I wasn't thinking rationally. I wasn't really present. I was already kind of checked out. And I remember, you know, the moment just before I I stepped onto the track um, or stepped off the platform. And I did, then I felt a little bit nervous, um, but at the same time, excited for you know, everything to be over for my for my pain to end. So that was the moment, and then you did it. Yeah. And then what do you remember after that? Because you were absolutely, you were run over by a train, the London Underground. Yeah. You know, I woke up underneath the train, and my first thought was, are you flipping kidding me? Like, it didn't work. Now what? And I just, you know, I lay there in the dark underneath the train, and I heard people disembarking off the train and I I just kind of closed my eyes and I thought, please, just let me lose consciousness. This could still work. I could still die if I just, um, you know, lose consciousness again. And eventually I did, but not before the rescue team got to me. And then I woke up in the, in the hospital and for many, many months afterwards, I, you know, I was so angry with myself and I felt even more of a failure. I was like, I can't even get this right. I'm so completely useless. And I lost both my legs in the suicide attempt. Um, so I, I use a wheelchair now. And I was very angry. Um, you know, but at that point, I hadn't, I didn't really have a, a relationship with God, but I did kind of say out to the universe, like, I couldn't do this before. And now I don't have legs either. Like, 
how am I supposed to do this now? But then a few months after the attempt, I had my first meeting with the psychotherapist. And, you know, that was a huge turning point for me after the attempt. It was the first time I kind of thought, okay, you know, there is someone who can help me. There is someone who can get me through this. Because when I went into that therapy session, I kind of thought, okay, you know, I'm just going to speak to her the way I speak to everyone. I'm going to, you know, wear that mask of everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be all right. Um, I don't need anything. But she saw right through me within 10 minutes. And I would be speaking to her about things that had happened in the past. And she would know without me telling her, you know, exactly what someone had said to me, exactly how I'd felt. And it was as if she was in my head with me. And that was the first time in my life that I thought, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way. And that was the first time in years that I, I kind of had hope again that I could overcome the depression. So, Daryl, I'm really the only one in this minute that can see you. Obviously, we're on a podcast. But, you know, just looking at you, I'm aware of the amazement, the kind of relief and some joy that you felt for the first time that you were understood. Yes. And to me, that says that you hadn't ever for taking the risk which you thought was a risk of taking off that mark and saying what people can't really hear unless you say it to them ever before this was like the first time and it was kind of like a revelation because I think let me ask you when you feel understood like that you also feel affirmed don't you absolutely um you feel like I mean before that I kind of felt ashamed of feeling that way and ashamed for not being able to to deal with my emotions and my feelings. But when my therapist kind of identified with that and and recognized those feelings in me, exactly like you say, she she affirmed me and I felt I felt like those emotions were justified. This is really important. Shame and empathy can't coexist together. Empathy, in other words, being understood emotionally on that level that you were experiencing with just wonderment in that moment does a huge amount in taking the shame away absolutely we say that empathy is like kryptonite to shame they don't coexist at the same time so this is your first tip and then we're going to go back to your journey of when you teach people now of how to deal with when they suspect or that they imagine that they're going through a hard time is come out with understanding them. In other words, empathizing with emotion. Listen to understand, not to respond. Yes. You listen to understand. And she challenged you. She didn't buy the story. No. And she didn't shy away. She didn't, like you were saying, okay, you know, some people don't want to ask personal questions because they're worried that you're going to close up more or that they're going to push you away but you know the more she asked the more I wanted to tell her because you know I felt understood and I felt yeah affirmed and I think it's very overwhelming for someone who's just been diagnosed with depression or who is thinks that they might be struggling with something like that to actually go and educate themselves about what it means and what they how they can manage it 
And so I think, you know, for you know, my friends and my family, they did that research themselves as well so that they could understand what I was going through so that they could empathize with me. And even for those who didn't really get it, you know, they didn't leave me alone to kind of figure it out on my own. They helped me to do research. They checked in with me. They asked me how I'm doing. So, you know, what you had to do, and let's talk about what happened since then, but just from that first meeting, you had to kind of question your whole belief, your whole mindset, almost about what the human race is about, because you were behaving like the human race is judgmental, the human race is perfect, the human race cope, the human race has connection, and I don't. You know, I'm not perfect. I always felt like I was on the outside and that my friends just kind of like tolerated me as part of the group. I had no idea how much people actually loved me and um, how much I meant to people until, until after my suicide attempt, because obviously I couldn't hide what had happened to me. And everyone was shocked. And they, you know, that was the first time that I understood how much I meant to people. And it's made us all kind of change the way we communicate. My friends, my family, we all are much more intentional about, you know, telling each other that we love each other and, you know, showing that we we care. Because I think sometimes you take it for granted that the people in your life know that you love them. So you don't have to say it. Um, But it makes a difference to hear those words. So, I mean, it was quite a revelation just an extreme revelation for you. And as that connection, that therapeutic connection progressed with this person, you know, one of the most wonderful parts of it was that connection developed with other people as well. I'm not saying that they were professional therapists, but once you've seen the possibility of that kind of response, you were prepared to kind of test out the waters and challenge your preconceived ideas with everybody, with most other people, I would imagine, in your life. And there you were, I just can't imagine at that point, you know, you, it was a failed suicide attempt, and there you were with no legs. But you were changing exponentially in the inside, exponentially. And part of the reason I never spoke to a therapist or sought help before was that I thought, you know, my, my experience is unique. No one's going to, sure, other people have, you know, had relationships break up or have been struggling to get a job, but no one's had my exact um, set of circumstances. So no one can really understand exactly what I'm going through. But, you know, those people might not have exactly the same experiences as you, but those emotions that you feel are universal. People understand those emotions. They can connect with those, the way you're feeling, even if they haven't been through um, your experiences. It's a very, very important point that that you say, you you don't have to have gone through the same experiences. But actually, you know, there are, there's a wide range, but really only limited groups of emotion. You know, we talk about sad, mad, glad, fear and surprise, that's it. All the sad feelings can be mildly sad to very depressed. The scared feelings be a little bit anxious, kind of immobilized with fear. The happy feelings can be, I've got to skip my step today because I'm having a good day, you know, to really overall feeling of content in your life and so on. You know, all of them are like that. So 
you, what you're saying, I don't want to lose. You're saying really, it's not so much about the content of the experience. About it's about the 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 sharing of the the understanding. Of Absolutely. So you took a risk and you started experiencing things from people in a way that was really unexpected. As you went on from that, you just talk about what you started experiencing, which you never thought you would. You know, when I came back to South Africa, um, several of my friends that I'd known for years opened up to me and said, you know what, I'm so sorry that you've been going through this on your own. I've been in therapy myself for years and we'd been going through very similar emotional experiences or experiences of depression, but we'd never opened up to each other because, and maybe we were all ashamed because of the stigma associated with having a mental illness, but it really made me, it made me realize how important it is to, to break that stigma because unless we can be open about it, we're not going to get the help that we need. And I thought that, you know, maybe if, if someone who has gone through depression and kind of made it to the other side or has learned a way to manage it, or someone who's been through something like I have, if we can be open about our experiences and, you know, show that we can still live productive lives and um, have great relationships and work, be productive, you know, we can break that stigma and we can um, show people that you can have a mental illness and still live a good life. Daryl, you know, it's still, I mean, it's a very, I think you've taken this message, you know, you wanting, this is maybe, you can answer me, is this your reason for sharing such a personal story? Is that these are the realizations that you want people to have? You want to destigmatize some of all of this. Is this what your desired outcome of sharing your story is about? Absolutely. I kind of thought, you know, if I can describe the way that I was feeling um, and, you know, my emotional states when I was feeling suicidal and even now, day to day, I still have depression, but I've, I've learned to manage it and I'm, I'm happy even though I have depression, but I'm, I've learned to manage like the ups and downs. And I think, um, I thought if I can describe that feeling, then people who are struggling in the dark, who aren't looking for help, who don't understand what they're going through, then they might, they might connect with what I'm saying and they might identify with it and it might encourage them to get the help that they need. And so I've started also going around to, to high schools and to talk to teenagers because I kind of thought, you know, if I'd, if I'd really understood depression, then maybe I would have asked for help or maybe it wouldn't have gotten to a point where I wanted to take my own life. Um, and my depression started when I was a teenager. And I think teenagers, you know, they have so many new emotions that they haven't experienced before that they don't know how to deal with. And high school, school can be a very cruel place for, for some people. And you know, even bullies, you know, they, they're just trying to figure out who they are and how they fit in the world. And, um, I think sometimes in, in school, you kind of feel like, okay, if I don't join in with the bullies, then I'm going to become the target for the bullies. So, yeah, I thought if I can talk to, to teenagers, to kids, and get them to understand that there's no shame in asking for help and understand that it's important to take care of your, your mental health as well as your physical health. Um, you know, people talk about 
mental health and they think it's only for the people who who have a mental illness but i mean we all have we all have minds we all have emotions mental health is no different to to physical health everyone has it and we have to you know take care of ourselves mentally as well as physically absolutely so you taking you know the connotation of mental health which actually has all of those connotations mm-hmm. which by the way i would like to think are really less and less now it is in a way because everybody during the pandemic is experiencing things that are almost normal reaction to traumatic situations. This degree of uncertainty. Absolutely. No one, you know, you don't know what it looks like. You don't even know when the future is. And that's acting as a springboard, which is giving rise to all sorts of things in an expected manner. It still requires a lot of courage, Cheryl. You've got your desired outcome. You do say that you have ups and downs in your day, not in your day, in your life, that you know better how to manage them. You've spoken about the power of support, which we don't want to lose. The, not only of professional support, of family support, of friend support, right? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't have been able to, I don't think my recovery would have been, would have been as fast if I hadn't. I had friends and family who rallied around me and who you know gave me the support you know on the days when i couldn't get out of bed or didn't feel like life was was worth living getting a message or you know just seeing a smiling face just getting a hug kind of made all that difference and made me feel connected to to someone to something that's incredibly important because you've also challenged the belief of Let's stay away from it. Let's not go there. Let's not talk about it because we're going to make him feel worse. You are here to say it doesn't. The person is going through it anyway. Yeah. So that's that's a really good lesson. The other thing that I want to ask you is the idea of self-compassion. Yes. Being a little bit kinder to yourself. Do you want to comment on that as being important? Absolutely. When I was really struggling with depression leading up to my suicide, I was so um, self-derogatory. And so, you know, I would talk with disdain of myself and I would kind of feel disgusted with myself that I couldn't cope with anything. But, you know, you're going to have hard days. And on those days, you need to be patient with yourself and be kind to yourself. You know, you don't have to feel ashamed in asking for help or doing anything that, that you need to do to keep yourself healthy. If that means taking medication for a while, do it if that if that keeps you healthy. I don't see any difference in someone with depression taking antidepressants as there is someone with diabetes taking insulin. That's what you have to do to stay healthy. So you know, do it. And I mean that's that's also what you need to to be a good friend, to be a good husband or son or father. You need to be able to be present for those people in your life. And if you need medication to do that, then then take it. There's nothing shameful in that. You know, if you need to to take compassionate leave, if you need to take a, a day for yourself to kind of get through the really dark time, do it. Yeah. It's just wonderful. It's like music going to say that. Because you know, <laughs> doing it from two sides. The one is saying, you know, take care of your parent's son, you know, the mm-hmm. other and take care of your friend's friend. Take care of your employee's employer. So what you're really <laughs> saying is that you've got to take care of yourself in order to be present for them. But much more than that, 
is you saying I need to take care of myself to be present for me. Yes. So I can cut myself flat. If I've got to take a break, you know, if I have if I'm starting to overwhelm, what seems to be so prevalent now with you is that you're recognizing signs. You know how to deal with some of the signs earlier and you recognize them like awareness of the first step to dealing with it, to change. So you are taking those signs quite seriously, you know, more than trying to shove them under the carpet. Like yes. You know, just after my suicide attempt, you know, I found dealing with my new disability much easier than dealing with my depression because, you know, the disability is so physical. You have to find a way to get to the toilet or to get into a car. So you figure it out quickly because you have to. But with depression, I had spent so many years pushing it to the back of my mind or trying to ignore it that actually bringing it into focus and working through it was much more difficult. But yeah, I recognize you know, when I'm, when I'm struggling to sleep or when I'm feeling more lethargic than usual, I recognize that as a sign that, okay, you know, maybe I'm not doing so well. Maybe I need to look after myself a bit better. You know, I know that I need to, to exercise and to eat well because those things don't just um, affect your physical health. They affect your mental health as well. Um, and they create, you know, the healthier your, your body is, the easier it is for you to, to take care of your mental health because there's less there are less kind of demands on your, your mental capacity. Yeah, it's so important because, you know, what you could say is, look, you know, I'm suffering. I, I have a disability anyway. So why should I really bother? Why should I really bother with taking care of all of that? You know, I'm not going to suddenly wave a magic wand. These kind of things can easily make people give up. And now what, that, what it's done is it make, has made you more aware and more mindful about the importance of looking after yourself in quite an unbelievable way. Absolutely, yeah. I had no idea the impact that it could have on my mental health. And, you know, now I know when I'm, when I'm taking care of my body and I'm, you know, also meditating or practicing mindfulness, you know, looking after your mental health has to be holistic. You have to combine, if you're taking medication or if you're going to therapy, if you need that, you need to combine it with, healthy exercise, diets, and with your spiritual health and social support as well. You have to look at all aspects of your life. So, Daryl, thank you. There's one question that we didn't uh, refer to, and I think, you know, it might be something that's there that people notice. You mentioned right at the beginning about being gay and that you hadn't come out of it and that you were also bullied at school, even though you, at that stage you, you said, I didn't even know what that really meant. And then clearly you got to know what that meant. And then there were issues that you had yourself about owning that. Can you make a comment about whether you think, you know, in our we, we kind of lauded as having one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. Yes. We have gay marriages, yeah, and so on. Is there still, in your opinion, a stigma and discrimination in this, I mean, in many ways, but certainly in your case, was part of the silence about the perception of a lack of acceptability of that. Absolutely. Um, you know, a new constitution was written, you know, when our country was kind of having a rebirth and, you know, we were really looking forward to, to the future. But I think the practice every day in people's lives is very different. And people, 
people come from traditional backgrounds that, you know, make being gay, I don't know, if, if it's a religious perception that being gay is sinful, or if it's, you know, guys at school would kind of think that I was going to come on to them or look at them in the bathrooms um, just because I, I was gay. So I think it's kind of a fear and you, you feel you know, for many years, part of my depression was that I felt that who I was, my sexuality wasn't acceptable. And it took me a long time, even after I came out to kind of undo all of those, those things that I tried to do to make myself seem straight. You know, I lowered my voice and I, I wouldn't listen to, to actual pop music that I liked, like Kylie Minogue or Pitch Up Boys, whatever, because that was so gay. You know, I tried to cut all of those things out of my life and deny all of these different parts of myself. And it became so, those things became so ingrained in me, that denial became so ingrained in me that it it took a long time to, to unpack that and to truly accept who I was. And things are better now than when I was at school. I know a few teenagers who are gay and they came out early and they they were accepted but that also has to do with the 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 kind of progressive background or communities that they are in and it's not that easy for everyone it sounds to me like this is another show and it's still a work in progress yes so just to end Daryl if I could say to you what do you want people to know from the what do you want to tell them what what are some of the points of please everybody this is what i want you you know however dark your life seems however alone you feel you're not alone there are people who care there are people who can help you and who want to help you so you know if you're struggling talk to someone as soon as you you share your experience or your fears with someone it makes your burden lighter and Professional support is important, and for some people, it's necessary. But, you know, even talking to to someone in your life and getting some kind of social support makes a huge difference already. Daryl, thank you so, so much. I mean, there's so much to unpack and explore, you know, having emerged from it and still going back around it, as you say, learning how to deal with it better. And it's inspirational and courageous to share your story with such vulnerability because it's that authentic vulnerability that really gets to people. When you talk from the heart, you touch hearts. And you are here making a huge, huge difference. So on behalf of everybody, thank you very, very much for coming on to Thrive with Dr. D and sharing your wonderful message. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dorian. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a Jackpot podcast.